Influencers, inspiration, and Instagram, Instagram, Instagram. This is Earned by Tribe Dynamics. Here's Connor Begley. Hi, everyone. Connor here. Uh, welcome back to another episode of Earned. Today, we have an amazing guest. Uh, she is the CEO of Sweaty Betty, as well as the first CEO, and I believe basically part of the founding team at Tula Skincare, uh, Julia Strauss. Thanks to thanks for joining the show, Julia. Hello. Hello from London. <laughs> thanks for joining us so late in the evening and working through all the technical difficulties. Uh, <laughs> yeah, this is, this is, yes, I am making I it work. I love it. It is my favorite part of the episode. Uh, <laughs> For those that don't know, those are Julia's four-year-old daughter's headphones. Uh, yeah. You, has she ever worn them before? Are you the first? She's, she's not been allowed to, but I'm glad that they're getting used, you know? <laughs> this is <laughs> what happens go. when you scramble right before you get started. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Um, well, so let's let's list a few of the accomplishments uh, that, that indicate why we are so lucky to have Julia here. Um, so first, she did her undergrad at Princeton in history, then went on to work at Goldman Sachs for two years before getting her MBA at Harvard. Um, after Harvard, she joined a fast-growing startup, uh, Pop Sugar, and then Bobble Bar, um, eventually then joining either very early or founding Tula. Um, which one is it? Did you found it or just kind of join? Basically I was right employee number one. So okay. yeah, sort, okay. of, sort of part of the founding team. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I would count yeah. it that way. And uh, for those that don't know Tula, Tula is uh, rapidly growing both while you were there and then after you've left, which is shows that you laid a, a really good foundation. I mean, we're seeing over 100% year-over-year growth in EMV, yeah. which is pretty fantastic. Um, and now she leads a 700-person team at Sweaty Betty, uh, which is also growing very quickly. I believe it's about 75% year-over-year in the U.S. for EMV, um, as well as, uh, I believe, 94% in the U.K., um, so yeah, so congrats. I'm so, I think we're so lucky to have you. I think your, your, your track record is unbelievable. Oh, well, I'm happy to be here. It's fun. It's been a fun, yeah, it's been a fun couple of years. <laughs> well, I remember meeting you too, when you first were at Tula and it was like I, th three of you. So I early. I know. I, I don't even know what office we were in. We were like three people in a corner being like, Hey, we're going to do this. It's going to be exciting. And yeah, super, super early. Um, and that feels like such a long time. And, and Savannah and the whole team over there just crushing it. It's so exciting to hear, you know, to sort of see your baby kind of uh, go off into the sunset and, and continue to, to just fly. So very exciting story. Yeah, that was a big leap to go from, I mean, you were at kind of some hot, fast growing startups to going to like a, you know, a two or three person team. What, yeah. what prompted that? Yeah, it was, it was fun. I mean, it, so I had been at, um, yeah, I'd been at Bobble Bar for several years and sort of been in e-commerce for, um, yeah, for several years. And actually, I mean, the, the truth is it was actually my husband because he had started his own business, um, maybe a year before, a year and a half before. And, uh, and I was just so jealous. I was just like, I want to do this. I want to be at the beginning. You know, it's so exciting to sort of build your own team and to really start to, to nurture a brand and, and help define that. And, and so I was just like, I can do this. Like, I want to go do this myself. And, um, and so it all, it all just sort of worked out because I, I met the Tula founders who were sort of a group of founders who, um, weren't operating the day to day. Um, and I just loved the story and their vision. Um, and I loved the idea that they were looking for someone to kind of just help define it. So we were literally like, you know, one product in a, in the corner of a room and, and just, uh, trying to figure it out. So it, it was from scratch. <laughs> I mean, I do did you, customer care. I did, you, you end up doing everything, right? 
Oh, I've been there. I know how it goes. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> we exactly. were two people, two people in a, yeah. I mean, it was like a run. Anyways, doesn't matter. Yeah. But yeah that's, uh, so do you think you'll ever do it again? Or uh, I'm kind of skipping all the questions that we had lined up, but do you think you'll ever do it again? Or do you think you're a big, oh, big, gosh, big brand you're for life me, now? Like, the- the week of Black Friday when I'm like so exhausted and, re- you know, like would I ever, I'm just exhausted talking about it. Yeah. I mean, I think never say never. I, I think everyone should experience the thrill of building from the beginning, you know, and I've, I've loved that. And now I'm at a very different sort of scale company and I'm loving that and I'm learning completely different things. So never say never. I think, you know, you got to come in with a lot of energy and eyes open, but yeah, I'd go back for sure. It's, uh, I mean, there's a little post-traumatic stress there with the startup life. It's, uh, <laughs> it can true. get touch and go. And so, uh, although I'm sure yours was a lot smoother ride than ours was. Um, well, you know, everyone has their moments. I, I said, no, no startup is a smooth ride. I mean, if someone's lying, if they say it is, so. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's hop into it. You know, I think in terms of today, I want to go through your background, talk a little bit about your philosophies from a marketing perspective, because I think that you've had a lot of experience with these digitally native brands that you've helped to grow quite rapidly. So I really want to dive in there. I think before sure. we do that, you know, we were talking a little bit before we started recording about, um, you know, the, the retail footprint of Sweaty Betty. Right. Mm. And specifically, you know, anybody who has a large retail footprint has gone through some pretty big transformations over the last nine months due to COVID, um, especially with the most recent shutdowns. Um, How have you kind of managed through that? Like what is what has worked? It sounds like you've transitioned a lot of those people to basically being customer care. Like what what what's worked and what hasn't? uh, Yeah. Yeah. It's been a roller coaster for sure. Um, And and we're we're really lucky over here in the UK because we've actually you know, we're actually in our second lockdown right now. So our stores are all closed right now. Um, mm-hmm. and, but we've been, um, we've, we've been very lucky to have a very strong government package to help support, um, our retail channels through that. Um, mm-hmm. so I, I think on, you know, first and foremost, being able to protect jobs has been critical and, and, and we are, you know, we're in a really lucky place there. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I have an, we have an amazing retail team and they're so resilient. And I always use that word because this is like true resilience in terms of just going through the, the roller coaster of, open, shut, open again, shut again, you know, and of course, you know, retail, what I love and, you know, hate about, I mean, it's just so, it's so manual and physical, right? You're literally moving stock out of the store, back to the warehouse, back to the store, re-merching the whole thing. Um, but you know, it, it, what, what we've done is, yeah, we've, we've adapted and we have a team that knows our customer through and through. So brilliant to bring them through customer care. Um, they know the business through and through. So they've been able to sort of focus on a number of different areas of the business. Um, and actually we launched, um, just a few weeks ago, our virtual styling coach, which is sort of a virtual, um, you know, shopping session with very similar to what you'd experience in store. And that's something we just spun up, you know, really overnight. I mean, it was over a couple of weeks, a full booking system, the whole thing. And that's what the team is working on right now. So, you know, the, the fact that they're able to adapt to that, not, not only adapt to sort of the day to day with customers virtually, but then also packing up stock and returning it to stores and sort of handling the operations, the physical operations. I always coming from digital, you know, I was always sort of blown away by just the, that, that true sort of physicality of retail. And, and it's, yeah. and I think it's a real shock to the system for a lot of digital players when they realize what it takes to run a shop, you know, I mean, a shop four walls, <laughs> you know, it, it's hard work. You're out there and, you know, nodding, you know, nodding hill trying to make sure there's a leak. There's something that and it is, it's a really tough, um, but exciting, you know, part of, part of the channel mix. 
Yeah, I mean, the I think the, the word you mentioned there that I really dig is this idea of resilience, right? Yeah. I mean, we've obviously seen it and we adapted, but I think for a tribe, it's, you know, we were, it was easier for us than it was for most because we can work remotely and we were already a technology company uh, with no leaky faucets that we have to work yeah. about. But, uh, but one of the places I saw it that I thought was really cool is I'm on the board of a company called Nest. So it's like a candle company, mm. right? They're really cool. Yeah. They do very well during the holidays, obviously. So go out, buy some Nest candles. Of um, course. But- no, big in, big in London. <laughs> They're big in London. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so but what was really cool for them in terms of their channel mix was, you know, they have kind of the, the bigger box retailers, right? The Sephora, you know, and those they had to shut down. It's really tough. Um, and that business, you know, is, is slowed down, understandably. Um, digital is obviously through the roof. Sure. But then the one in the middle that was really curious was they have this boutiques business, which is a pretty sizable chunk of the business. Yeah. And that's yeah. actually up year over year. And it's like, what? And it's like these small business owners are like literally like hand driving and hand delivering orders and like yeah. just get being so resilient um, yeah. in terms of the way they approach things. And it's yeah. like, it's just really, I think as much as this is obviously a horrible situation, it's so cool to see how resilient people have been and Absolutely. how ingenuitive and innovative they've been. It's just, it's, uh, it's really cool to witness when you, when you kind of can take a step back from, from all the horrible parts of it. Yeah. No. I, and if you see that moment, I mean, I remember when, I mean, when we shut our stores and this was really, this was really hard, you know, emotional, you know, you close the doors for the first time in 22 years. And this is a, a, a longstanding company, right? We've been around for 22 years, doors open. And, and you can either just say, I'm going to just, fall apart, right? Or you just take that and go, well, what can I do? You know, now we have, Mm -hmm. we have a whole team. What are we going to do with this? How are we going to make sure that we stay motivated and keep that team going? And um, yeah, just sort of seizing that moment. But it's, it's amazing. It's really interesting. I mean, we've actually, when we did reopen, um, our stores were doing really, really well, especially outside of central London, um, because I think a lot of people are craving that neighborhood, you know, one-to-one interaction with people because we're all stuck behind a computer screen all day. So actually our neighborhood stores are positive like for likes, which is just nuts, you know, in, in a retail yeah. environment like this. Um, because I, I, I do think that those, those boutique style where you're not sort of in the big box, um, you know, people are really missing that they're missing that, that actual, you know, in-person connection. So I, 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 I mean, I can go it on and on, but I, I'm a firm believer that retail is not dead. You know, there, there's still a oh. component to that uh, for sure. Um, and I think if anything, we're going to come out of this and everyone's going to be really excited to see each other. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I mean, I think that's a big part of it, right? Like, I just want to get outside and like go somewhere, like yeah. see other people's yeah. faces. Absolutely. And so, yeah, no, I think, I think retail is going through a transformation and I think, you know, uh, digital sales have obviously accelerated. Like you have these, like you were saying, these digital stylists now, like that's so cool. I've always wanted to do that. I've never really, I, I don't know if I'm like too intimidated, but I have no <laughs> sense of style. And so I really would love to have somebody else tell me what to wear. And I've just never committed. And so- you got it. Connor, come on, how can you style? Look at what you're wearing, look at your shirt. I know, you I mean, about? you would never think it. I So this, my favorite description of this shirt was that it looks like the wallpaper in a Cuban restaurant. Um, which I Cafe think Havana, like yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I see that. I see that. <laughs> <laughs> it's brilliant. I think we need that on a legging. <laughs> there you go. I dig it. Uh, I actually love this print. I don't know what it is. I really like it. Um, okay, cool. Let's get into your background a little bit. So, sure. you know, as I was looking through your LinkedIn, I felt like I was having deja vu. Um, and I think the reason I felt like I was having deja vu is I interviewed Savannah, who took over as CEO for you at Tula, who yeah. also got her Bachelor in Arts from Princeton, where, where you both rode. 
then yes. did the kind of investment banking consulting thing, then went to Harvard Business School, then did operations at like a hot startup, then took over as a CEO for an existing founder. Uh, both of you spent time in London, like other it's than crazy. being like a few years difference, <laughs> like it's literally like you could swap it. Most people wouldn't know. It'd be like the same uh, I resume. would only hire a very specific successor that had to <laughs> <laughs> She had to check lots of boxes. It was hard to find Savannah. <laughs> Um, it's crazy, right? I know. We always joke about that. We almost forget. In fact, when you just listed that, I was like, oh God, I forgot she lived in London too. Like we, it is sort of, yep. it's super weird. Um, oh my it was a total, I mean, total coincidence, but yeah, she, uh, she popped on, on the right. I mean, obviously I was a bit biased when I saw her resume, but, um, <laughs> like, wait a minute. I like this. Um, <laughs> exactly. so that's, so, so you did meet her through a resume then you didn't meet her while you were at school. No, no, no. We met, well, we knew each other. Um, I think we knew each other for sure. Um, and she was a few years younger. Um, and so I definitely sort of recognized the name and her face, but yeah, no, when she came through, I, yeah, I think it was through a recruiter, um, yeah, no, it, it wasn't, you know, I, we, we didn't reach out organically, um, but it was, yeah. it was crazy. And then we have all these other like weird, I mean, the worlds are small, right? But um, yeah, of course. But yeah, That's no, it, was, think, it, it was funny. I feel like over time you realize how small the world is, right? There's totally. just so many weird connections out there, especially as you get deeper into any category, right? Yeah. Like, you yeah, start sure. all being connected. Um, so let's, well, let's start with school then, you know, I'm kind of <laughs> hopping around here a little bit, but what made you decide to study history? I, I was... You know, I was pretty good at history, but I just could never, I know like history repeats itself and it rhymes and it's, you know, blah, 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 blah. I just still, I can't force myself to read. That's it. You just, just captured the whole thing. That's the whole discipline. <laughs> what, what, yeah. uh, so what drew you there? I, uh, I loved, I mean, I loved it. So I, I was just, I loved it in high school. My father had studied history and that was just sort of always at the dinner table. We always, you know, he was such a good storyteller. And so we would, we would sort of um, organically, you know, we just learned. And that was, that was part of our upbringing, I guess. And, and so when I got to school, I mean, I, my story is going to always be like, I know I, I never have a plan. So I got to school and I just wanted to study whatever was interesting and fun. And I took like classes across nine different departments and everyone said, that's not what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to focus. Like I was taking <laughs> philosophy and all this, you know, everyone, no, no plan, but it just was fun. And I, I, I do think, and I look back and I don't regret at all sort of that broad liberal arts education because I, I actually thought you know for one time in your life you can just learn and just just kind of soak it all up um and I and I did find that history was where I wanted to focus because I just enjoyed it and I wanted to write about it and edit Princeton you have to write a thesis since so you have to you know you really have to love what you're studying because you're gonna have to <laughs> you know get it down on 200 pages so um so I loved it and it, it was it was so fun uh and and I loved every class really um, totally yeah. impractical. The answer is I do not use it at all. Like, do I, I wish I could have some sort of like, here's how I use it in my day to day. And it's, you know, I, this is how I use marketing, but no, I don't draw on it at all. <laughs> Maybe a little bit by writing. Right. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, you, you learn a lot more than I think you realize. I know for me, sure. I, I had no idea what I wanted to do either. I think I was more, I wouldn't say I had a plan, but, um, I like, it was like, business. I'm interested in business. It was such a bad decision. And then like, I just, I kind of wish I would have been a little bit more kind of a seeker of knowledge. I was, that was not my, my goal when I was in school. I didn't, I really didn't focus until there was like, it was like, I was graduating in 2009 and the financial crisis was right yeah. in the middle of it happening. And I was like, Oh God, I'm screwed. Like, this is bad. Yeah. I have to focus. My sister graduated that year. That's a tough year. <laughs> it was a rough year. They call it, yeah. the, they call it like the lost generations. Cause you're like, your earning potential <laughs> over your first 10 years is like 
20% less than if it didn't happen, basically, <laughs> like if you get born into a crisis. <laughs> so, um, well, so what's funny about that in terms of you saying you didn't have a plan is like, after that, it looks like you have a plan. Like it looks like you're I'm so looking. glad that it's like, it seems so, I really should rewrite the thinking and be like, yeah, then I know exactly. No. I, and I think one of your questions, yeah. What, you know, Emma, what, what was, how did I choose the next? I mean, I had no plan. I graduated and I was like, I, I don't know what to, I, I didn't want to, I knew I didn't want to study history for the rest of my life. I knew I didn't want to yeah. be a professor. Right. And, or in yeah. academia. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, I, I, I went into investment. I mean, the honest answer, why did I go into investment banking? Honestly, I wanted to move to New York and I wanted to be able to afford it. <laughs> so I looked for a job that seemed like, you know, it paid well. And I mean, this is so like not what you're supposed to say. Um, but, but I mean, really, I mean, I, I didn't, I think for a lot of people, you don't really know what these jobs even mean. And so, I mean, the honest answer was I, I wanted to get to New York. I knew that that was where I would take a lot in. It was always my dream to live there on my own, financially independent. Um, and then everyone said, you know, you know, consulting or investment banking is such a good foundation. You know, you yep, learn yep. a lot. They're going to yep. kind of, you know, I don't, can I say kick the shit out of you? Sorry. I don't know where, where I am. <laughs> but fine. it's true, right? You know, they're, they're gonna, you're going to, it's going to be tough, but you're going to learn a lot and you get, you just get those basic skills in. And I knew I didn't have them having studied, you know, having studied history. So I, I wanted to, um, I wanted to get a good foundation and I still, I mean, even though it was hard, I still look back on that and say that was the right move, but that wasn't like, you know, it, was, it wasn't exactly a, a perfect plan. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it looks like a very linear path, but, um, but yeah, no, that makes sense. I think you just kind of, you know, you reassess and you decide what your next step's going to be. It's like, well, this makes sense. I think. I think um, you got it. That... Yeah. I mean, I do think it's really hard when, when you don't know who you are even when you graduate, right? You don't know much about yourself. Yeah. You don't really, you don't know what you're necessarily good at in the sort of professional setting. So I think the best thing is to say, you just want to go learn something and take it from there. <laughs> I do feel like it takes a solid like seven to 10 years to figure out what you're good at. Like, I feel like I've just started okay. to figure out like, okay, these are the things I'm good at. These are the things I'm not as good at. So let's like focus on these things over here. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. What, yeah. so what made you decide to go back and get the MBA? I mean, so you, you know, Investment banking is nice because you get to see a lot of different companies. You, like yep. you said, they really get to push you so you can see where your limits are from a work perspective. But why, why go back and get the MBA after that point? Yeah. Aside from like being, you know, then you're like, I want to go back and party at school. Like, this is, you know, why, am I, why am I working? I'm, I'm, build, I'm building my network <laughs> and spending a hundred thousand dollars. So I want to go back to school. Um, yeah, no, I think, so one thing that I think was, was, inter I, I found it hard to get out of finance. Meaning okay. looking around for a job because I knew that that wasn't my dream. You know, I knew I wanted to go do something. I, I started to figure out what I was good at and I started to figure out that, you know, pure finance wasn't what I wanted, wasn't the hat I wanted to wear, but there, there were tools I learned and I thought I could be, you know, more creative and I like marketing and, um, and I found it hard candidly to, to, to get people to see beyond the finance experience. Um, and so I felt like an MBA was a way to say, listen, I'm breaking free of the finance mold. You know, yes, I, you know, I, I do want to go into uh, industry, into operations. I and mean, I remember thinking operations, you know, that sounds so sexy, but I had no <laughs> idea what that meant, right? I was in fine. I was like, it's operating. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, and so I figured, gosh, I probably should go to school and figure out what that means. Cause I think that that's what I want to go do. Um, and so I, I thought an MBA was, a, was going to be a great way to, to, to sort of just get that, Exposure and it was. I mean, you know, when you're in finance and, and I think less so maybe in consulting, um, 
you know, you really get a narrow view of what it means to run a business. I mean, you're only, you're in a financial business. It's, it's such a different um, day to day. And so, you know, this was a way to really to, to get that industry experience and, and, and to sort of see how all these other businesses work and try to figure out where I belonged. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, it's an expensive way to figure that out yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. an MBA, but, um, but definitely for me, it was, it was a good, it was a good clean break to, to make the next move. Yeah. I mean, it's nice to hit pause and reset. Right. And I think that's the nice part about it is you can kind of say, okay, I know I did this in the past, but now I'm hitting reset and doing something different, a little bit different. Right. Totally. And yeah. And I think given that I, leeway, I think for a lot of people, cause people always ask me, should they go, you know, to business school? And, and it's such a, it is a big commitment of time and money. And I, I think if you're a career changer, you know, if you're looking, I, I do think it's a really good way to try to make that next step, that, that decision, um, with a clean head, you know, cause it's hard to find yeah. a job while you're working. It's hard to sort of envision what that change might be. Um, I also met my, my husband in business school. And so whenever I tell people, uh, sometimes I'll say, Oh, you don't need to go to business school. And he's like, you know, it was a pretty productive, like, you know, like, <laughs> like really? That's like, like, Oh, you don't need business. You know, it was a waste of time. I wouldn't learn anything. He's like, yeah. So, which is kind of a cliche too. You you, you meet your partner, but I mean, it, you know, we did. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's how I met my wife, not in business school, but in school. Right. And yeah. So yeah. Exactly. Exactly. There's definitely, I mean, I, yeah. I mean, there's actually people pushing not only no business school. Right. But I think in the tech space in particular, there's a push for like no school at all. Just skip college. It's like, wow. uh, I mean, there is value, right? So you've got the Teal Fellowship, which like literally they'll give you a scholarship to skip school, right? right. Like they pay you right. to skip school. Yeah. Or um, Lambda School is another one where it's basically like, hey, you know, skip college, save the money, learn to be a programmer. Right. Um, and, and get a six-figure job, you know, at 19. And it's like, right. oh, that's appealing, right? Yeah. And so, yeah. Uh, but again, there are a lot of, there's a lot of positives that come out of it. That aren't yeah. necessarily I mean, I think related, you learn right? so much on the job, right? But it, it does give you a broader context. And, and we're, mm -hmm. you know, we're so, we're so in the day to day of, of work, you know, I mean, you, you, you just, you're so living your bubble, right? I mean, that was what I felt like in finance, that it, it is really nice to have an opportunity to step back. And, and I think you'll surprise yourself, right? Because you, you learn, you, you realize that there's just a lot more out there. And maybe there's something that you never even thought of. So yeah, no, I, I I am a firm believer that you know you need some time away and and some totally. some sort of foundation. Well, that was, for me with Tribe, we went. You know, I came out of school, joined a company, worked like insane hours for a few years, and yeah. then went and lived in Australia for about seven months with my girlfriend, who's now my wife. And that was you know what led to us starting Tribe, right? It was a minute to just like, hey, what what else is out there? What am I interested yep. in? What do I want to do? And so taking that time, if you can, I think is just. Uh, which is a really good thing to do, whether it's a, in, an, as an MBA or it's to travel or whatever it is. Totally. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't yeah. have to be exactly. Just some some way to, yeah, to try to get a little perspective. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, so let's talk about Bobble Bar, right? So you were there kind of early days when it was yeah. growing really, really quickly, which I have to imagine was exciting. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that experience. You know, some of the things that you learned while you were there. You know, I know you mentioned in another interview that it was very much like an impulse purchase, which I think is very different than you know, Tula, which is more of a considered Indeed. purchase, right? Or even, yeah. I think even Sweaty Betty isn't probably an impulse buy. I'm sure there's some research that's done there as well. Yeah, no, um, no, much more considered purchase. Yeah, I mean, I, it was great. It was so fun. I was, it's like, I mean, it's, it feels like so long ago. So it's, it's, I'm trying to remember what it was like to be a bit, you know, I joined, I think we were maybe 19 people or 15 people, something like, I mean, just tiny. Um, and we, and they just raised their series A. Um, and this was my first sort of, 
semi-leadership role within, you know, a fast-growing e-commerce business. And, and I think, you know, it was, it was the first time that I'd been able to sort of really put on a marketing hat because I was doing business development and, and, and marketing and partnerships was sort of all a big part of, of the way that we brought customers in the door at Bobble Bar. Um, and, and to learn about e-commerce through and through and, and, and also the customer. And I, I just fell in love with, with marketing to women, um, through this channel. And, and that was, you know, really the whole, the whole game. But for, for that, for that category, it was really interesting. So, um, you know, accessories was fashion, fashion jewelry was, um, sort of just ignored by most of, of, you know, the, in, in that, in the apparel world and in the accessories world. Um, you know, if it wasn't fine jewelry, it sort of had this no man's land and no one really paid attention. And Amy and Danielle, the founders who'd, who'd been a year above me at, um, HBS had really said, you know, that there's actually a customer out there who loves this product. And by the way, this product is brilliant digitally, right? Easy mm-hmm, to ship, mm-hmm. easy, you know, lightweight, um, easy to understand, no sizing. I mean, there's all these dynamics around the category that were really interesting for, for a pure play e-commerce business. Um, and so, you know, that impulse purchase was really interesting because for a lot of women, you know, when it came to apparel, when it came to clothing, they didn't want to necessarily, um, you know, be as bold. They didn't necessarily want to make a statement. Um, it was a little bit more intimidating. Whereas jewelry is often a category, um, that women are more willing to play and more willing to sort of get out there and, and, and express themselves, um, a bit more boldly. And so it was super fun because you could just have so much fun with, with the product, um, and really be able to explain it digitally. And I think we were still earlier, you know, in, I mean, this is back in whatever, I'm going to sound so old, but it was many years ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, when Facebook marketing was still, um, you know, it was fab.com. There were all those players who were still trying to figure out the arbitrage and, and it was, it was just yeah. early. Um, and so what we were just sort of figuring out along with everyone else, Birchbox, um, you know, uh, Bonobos, it was how to market this product, um, you know, on just purely digitally and, and how to get her to sort of take out her wallet in an impulsive way. Um, and at that price point, it was, it was pretty easy. Um, so it was really exciting. And we, by the time I left, I think we were about 150 people. I mean, it had really taken off. Um, and, uh, and it was just, I mean, it was just, I think it was like 95% women. We were all, you know, under the age of 30. I mean, we just having fun and, and no, yeah. no, no clue what we were doing, but figuring it out. You know? Sounds um, like the, then, the first five years of tribe. <laughs> not really sure what this marketing thing is, but we're going to just try to, you know, give it a, give whirl. It a shot. <laughs> and the funny I mean, thing, we, I mean, you joke. And the funny thing is, is that there really wasn't a playbook though. Right. I mean, it wasn't. You know, back, even back then, which isn't that long ago, you know, there wasn't sort of, here's how Facebook works and here's how, and I mean, Instagram wasn't even a thing really. And, and yep. so you were just trying to figure out how to use these tools that no one had really, um, you know, scaled yet in, as a, as a proper marketing tool. Um, so yeah, it was wild. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I'll, you reminded me, we had like a really serious debate about like whether to, integrate Instagram into our platform. We're like, I don't know. Like, is this going to be a thing? Like, I don't want to spend a bunch of time on it. I literally remember. Totally. I remember being like, there was like another one. There was, there was another, it was um, a different platform that everyone's talking about. And I was like, Oh, I think the other one's better. And like, yeah, yeah, you forget that these tools, yeah, you know, they just evolve so quickly. And I mean, again, I'm not, you know, I'm not that old. This hasn't been that long, but it just evolves so quickly. Um, I mean, I think and that, and that's when I, I realized that, digital was going to be was fun, right? Because it was so fast, and it, yeah. and it, there was so so much you could do analytically, but it was also creative. And I was just like, this is this is where I want to play. Yeah, 
Yeah, no, I mean, it's it was a good decision, obviously. Um, I would imagine that kind of influenced a lot of your early strategies with Tula as well, right? Because I know for you guys, influencers were a really big thing, right? D2C is a really big thing. Yep. You know, what? tell me about what your approaches were there to the influencer space. It sounds like a lot of it was focused on organic. Um, can you talk a little bit about kind of what your marketing strategies were early at Tula that you thought yep. worked, um, specifically from like a social lens? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it, 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 it was the first thing I, I did when I came, when I sort of, when we started to say, I mean, we we didn't even have a website, right? So we launched the website. (laughs) What do we do? How do we get traffic? Um, I mean, this is so, you know, this is what you do, right? When you're so tiny, you're just kind of hoping to, to figure, you know, we've built it. Will they come? Um, and, and the, the, the lesson for sure from Bobble Bar by, by the time I left was that influencer partnerships, which again was still, this is early, right? I mean, there was no, you, you know, that there really weren't, wasn't anything built out around it, but we knew that that was tri- driving traffic. And it, towards the end at Bobble Bar that I, my time there, we were definitely partnering with influencers in a, in a paid way, both through collaborations was, was sort of my world, um, in terms of product collaborations, but also in terms of curation and just, giving them the ability to, to really drive that paid traffic and, and track it. Um, and reward style, of course, was starting to become, you know, a much bigger platform. So that I knew worked. And when, and so when we had two, when we, we got two up and running, um, you know, and, and there really was three of us, we said, well, what, what can we do? Let's gift this product to the influencers mm-hmm. that I knew from Bobble Bar, mainly yeah. who were, were mainly in fashion. Um, and let's see if they'll talk about it. And, and the great thing about, both jewelry as well as, as beauty that I, that is a bit trickier in apparel, um, is that it's very easy to get product into people's hands. You know, it's, it's affordable, it's doable. Um, and, and, you know, especially in, 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 um, in beauty, you know, the sampling is, is pretty, you know, pretty easy to, to do at scale. Um, and so, and we believed in the product and we had a couple of products and we just said, we're just going to get this into people's hands and we're going to see if they'll talk about us. Um, and in the beginning, it, it was sort of like, you know, I, w- would you consider talking about this authentic? Like, tell us if you like it. Um, yeah. and, and the product's incredible. And, and, you know, we had a couple of, um, of influencers. Katie McFarlane comes to mind and, um, a couple of folks in Texas and, and they, um, and they fell in love. And it was so, um, exciting to start to see that organic traffic come through. Um, so that was sort of where we started. It was very individual. I mean, you, you really started the personal relationship. Um, and, and try and just genuinely humbly say, do you like my product? You know, that, that's all you can say. And if the answer is no, that's fine, but you have to be willing to go out there and sort of, um, you know, put yourself out there. And then I, I, I'd say that, you know, what evolved relatively quickly was starting to see the, 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 those partnerships as more of a paid channel. And, and that was Mm -hmm. something that, you know, that, I mean, that is what Savannah has done brilliantly, you know, at scale now is, is build that into a, a full fledged. Um, you know, paid marketing channel that, that, that is, um, incredible at scale. Um, but I think for when I was there, it was still, you know, we were still relatively, um, scrappy about it. But I think we, we understood again, because we were so small and, and no one knew about us. We understood that if we shared in, in, um, in that revenue with, with our partners and if we really saw influencers as true, you know, business partners, um, we, we would be able to, you know, sort of hit outsides uh, above our weight class in terms of brand awareness so that they were yep. going to be more willing to work with us, despite the fact that we were not distributed and no one really knew who we were. So, you know, that, that was, a, I think, has, has been a philosophy for Tula, you know, through and through from the very, very beginning. Um, and, I, and it's exciting to see sort of, you know, that that business now completely transformed 
um, into what Savannah's been able to do with it. So yeah, that was always a no, big that's part super of the strategy. Cool. I mean, the thing I really dig about what you said, there's a few things, right? One is, um, you know, we have a lot of small brands that ask us like, Hey, how can I do this? Right. And it's like, what you're talking about doesn't require any money. Like, you know, it requires some product and it requires time and effort, but all of that can be done without, you know, a, a large budget. Right. And I think that, um, that's first. I think second, you know, I talk a lot about kind of visualizing the creators as publishers, right. You know, they want to grow their audience, right. They have to create content that's interesting. Yep. Um, and so if you can help them to do that, right. Um, they will reward you. Um, and so you should really treat this kind of like PR, right. Where, you know, how could you get coverage in Glamour Magazine? It's like, well, if you have a really good product, like you have something worth talking about and you get it into the editor's hands and then you start to build a relationship with that editor, the likelihood that they're going to cover you in future product releases increases, right? Yep. Um, and so, uh, so it's just really cool to hear that that's the way that it worked. And hopefully it's inspirational for people that are starting their, their own companies who think that they have to come in and, and pay everybody in order to, to participate, right? Yeah. So it's yeah, really cool. I I, I do think, especially as, as the as the you know influencer space has, has evolved and and has just has you know really formalized, right? And this has become a channel that is that is so much more built out now. Um, you know, you you do forget that what makes this so different than other marketing channels is, and and, and I think PR is the, the best parallel is that the these you know these are relationships. You know, creators are, are people. They're just <laughs> they're just people, yep. right? Yep. And, we're all, and they're I just know. trying to run their business the same way <laughs> yeah. we're trying to run ours. And and so I I do I, I do think that in the beginning the most important thing is to just be humble and genuine um, and try to build personal relationships. And then I think that the amazing transition, you know, that again that Savannah's been able to is is then how do you how do you transition that into something that is scalable? Because that obviously isn't scalable. You know, there's only there's only so many people you can talk to in any given day. So I, I think that is the big transition but in the beginning it, it's it's what's made so many brands um you know what what i think has allowed d to c to really break through in a way um uh, and allow so many small brands to to succeed when you don't have you know distribution in in the big box players you know that that's what's democratized you know the the internet yeah. in so in some ways i mean right? it's, it's really cool i've, I've said it before in podcasts, but uh, the phrase I've always really liked is the hyper efficiency of quality. I don't know mm. if Ian Rogers coined it. Um, so he's the CDO of LVMH and then, uh, a friend. And I saw him in an interview. This is before I knew him. And he, he said that phrase, the hyper efficiency mm. of quality, which is, you know, what the internet enables is if you have a really good restaurant, it can be in the middle of nowhere, right? But the Yelp reviews that are four and a half stars are going to bring people to you, right? Because totally. the quality of the product's so high. Um, same thing in, in this space, right? Like if you have a product that's just better, um, it is going to see the light of day or it is more likely to see the light of day today than it yep. would have in the past. And yep. conversely, you know, even if you're a big brand with big distribution and big budgets, if you release something that's substandard or just not that good, it's going to show up in the reviews. It's going to show up in the tutorials. It's going to show up in the blog articles, right? Like it's going to yep. show up um, that you just aren't putting something into the world that's better, right? Yep. And so um, I think that's my favorite part about the internet is it's just getting people better stuff, right? There's just more visibility yeah. and better stuff for, for people, uh, which I do. Absolutely. And, they, and that customer, I mean, it puts the power back in the hands of the customer. But I think for any product company, I mean, yeah, great product is table stakes. You just, you can't even be at the table, you know, you yep. know, you might as well just go, I mean, that, that is just 
where you got to start and then you layer on everything on top. Right. Exactly. But, but if you want to, in this world, yeah, you just, there, there's simply no hiding, um, you know, from, from, from quality, you have to have the, the quality product that, that fits the, the customer need. Yeah, totally. Well, let's, so let's talk about Sweaty Betty a little bit. So you transition from Tula to Sweaty Betty, which is a big jump yes. in terms of at least size of team, right? Mm. And I believe you, you moved out there, I believe it was because your husband moved to the UK or you guys wanted to move, relocate to the yeah. UK. And so was yeah, that the idea? We, um, he, he, he uh, sold his business to a business over here. Um, okay. It was actually five days before my daughter was born. So it was, uh, <laughs> it was an interesting, it was an interesting time. Um, and, uh, and actually, uh, so the first year he, he commuted, I, I wasn't willing to leave Tula yet. Um, yeah, and I just yeah. said, you know, let's make sure this London thing's real. I'm not, you know, I'm not willing to. So it was, it was a hell of a year. Um, but yeah, but no, and, and, you know, he loved it and, and we, we, it was the right move for us. So, um, we decided to make that move and, and, um, and uh, it was a really small world. I, I um, was in uh, Tula is in uh, Catterton. L. Catterton is one of the investors in Tula um, and uh, and is also an investor in Sweaty Betty. Um, and so I knew the founders through, you know, various portfolio um, private equity events we, we'd done. And um, and so I actually phoned up Simon, who is a, a, a former CEO and founder and said, hey, I'm moving to London. Um, do you know anyone who's, you know, hiring? I'm looking for looking for jobs. And and, and, and actually it was and he sort of said, Oh, I'll think about it. And then, you know, we talked again. He said, well, interesting timing. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, uh, uh, and so it was just very, uh, just one of those things in life, you know, you, you sort of, um, it all, all the stars aligned and, um, and, you know, they were looking, uh, Simon was looking to step back, uh, and, uh, and looking for a, a new CEO and, uh, it just sort of worked out. Um, so, so I'm still in the family, which is really nice to be able to sort of, you know, still, stay close to Tula and, and very similar board and, and all that. Yeah. Private equity guys and girls don't tend to like to leave, let their good operating partners leave. Uh, they try to keep, <laughs> they try to keep you guys around because uh, they know they're not dumb. Uh, well, it's <laughs> so been wait, fun to stay in the family. <laughs> so, so what about, you know, cause obviously, you know, sweaty Betty wasn't your only option. So um, you mentioned another interview that, um, you know, what makes a brand different is something that you think about a lot, right? Because yep. ultimately they're not, uh, and I'm quoting you here, this isn't mm. like Uber where you're creating a new, uh, kind of a totally new thing, right? It's not a totally new consumer behavior. What you're doing is the consumer's deciding between you and Lululemon and, you know, uh, Gymshark and whoever else, Aloe Yoga, et cetera, et yep. cetera. Yep. Um, so what was it about Sweaty Betty that kind of makes them mm. different? Like what, what stands out to you about the brand? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's a um, I, smart thinking in that interview. I don't remember saying that, but <laughs> I'm quoting um, you directly. So true. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but I, you know, well, first of all, I mean, so I love the category. So, so this was sort yeah. of my dream job, right? To, I mean, my, actually, my sister works at Reebok, which is so funny, but um, I was always so like, Oh, you're so lucky you get to work in activewear because I was, you know, an athlete in college. So, so category wise, it was just a dream. And I, I think what, you know, what I loved about the, the, the brand and, and what has stayed so true today. And again, we're 22 years old, right? Which there's a lot of heritage and it's a lot of history. Um, is that, is that this is a purpose driven brand in a category, um, you know, that, that, that originally was, there wasn't, you know, many options. This was originally a category that was very male oriented. You know, this was Adidas and Nike who really only spoke to men. And then Tamara always talks about, you know, one of the reasons she started is that, um, in activewear, it was, it was called shrink it and pink it, you know, make it small, make it pink. And that's what a woman wants. Right. 
Yeah, Obviously, that's, that's all she wants. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so there was such an opportunity to build a, a, a business um, that was really speaking to the to the female customer, um, and to really understand what what fitness and wellness meant to her. And and I think that you know our competition, lots of different brands have, have addressed that question differently. And I think from a sweaty Betty standpoint, um, you know we we take our fitness very seriously. Our our product is extremely technical. I, I would argue as technical as any of the competition. Um, but I, I think our approach was 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 a bit more. F- Fun, you know, we, we really wanted to make this a, a product that allowed women to express themselves, to play with color, to play with print, um, and to make sure that the brand wasn't preaching and wasn't saying, you need to look like this, you need to go do this to be fit. You know, actually it is, why don't you go have fun and ha- and be active and be social with your friends, and here's product that's going to allow you to do that. Um, and so I think it was, it, it's always been a brand that approached it a little bit differently and said, there is that you can actually be very serious about your fitness without taking yourself too seriously. Um, and, and that, is, and that really comes through within sort of the brand codes and the, and the product and the way we speak to customers. So, so that was very important to me. And I, I loved, and I thought that that was, you know, there was sort of a humor and, and realness to the, to the brand um, that I didn't necessarily see, you know, within the competition. Yeah. It's funny how much, just kind of your tone can make a difference. Like the mm. name itself stands out, right? Like Sweaty Betty, it's like a funny name, right? Yeah. And yeah. Um, I know that that's something that Benefit Cosmetics really pushes on is like, we're, we want to have fun. Like we want this to be a fun brand and a fun place to work. And it sounds, it's, I don't, I, silly is the wrong word, but it doesn't feel like that should be a differentiating factor, but like it is like in a, in a fairly meaningful it, way. It is. Yeah. I, I think that co- the consumers now, you know, really, you know, want to connect to a brand well beyond the product. Again, product is table stakes. And of course, you know, different products have different end uses and, and, and you might be quite specific in what you're looking for, but I, you know, consumers these days, you know, are looking for purpose, you know, brands need to be able to express what they're here for, um, and, 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 and also sort of how they want, how they, uh, relate to customers beyond product. And I think for us, you know, our, our purpose is to empower women through fitness and beyond that is, that is, a, we are focused on the female customer that is exclusively, you know, by women for women, um, and, and empowering her to, to live her best life. Um, and, you know, I, I think the tone that comes through again is very much by women for women. Um, and and I, I think that that is a point of difference and that 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 is part of your decision making process when you think about whether you're going to buy, you know, the base layer, or whether you're going to buy a pair of leggings. It, it actually does come whether it's conscious or not. You know, I, I think it is an important part of that that consumer journey. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about so now that you've been there for a couple of years, right? You've so been there for, I think, two, two and a half years now. Yeah. Um, you know, if I'm reading the tea leaves. I think they brought you in to kind of help push into the U.S. as a market, um, as well as to become a little bit more digitally native as a company, right, and less kind of retail uh, reliant. Um, one, is that accurate, right? Were those kind of some of the things that he wanted you or, or that they wanted you to kind of push forward on? Um, and then two, you know, do you feel like you've been successful in that? And if you have, like, what's what's worked, uh, what's worked for you guys? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I think... Um... I'm not sure they went out there and said we need an American, <laughs> right? But, but it, it certainly yeah. didn't hurt. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. You know, yeah. I, I think I think you know what I 
was excited about, and I think what Simon and, and the team, you know, saw, hopefully saw in me was, um, you know, the, the American point of view and just coming from the States and knowing that that was a big opportunity for us um, and continues to be a big opportunity for, for the brand um, was certainly helpful. Um, and I, but I think more important was the digital piece, you know, and, and I can't um, overemphasize, you know, what a journey it has been um, to, to really go from being, you know, a retailer who had a flagship digital website, right. Is the way you used to talk. We used to talk about it. Um, to being a digital first business that has retail that amplifies digital, right? And, and that shift has not only been cultural, operational, structural, um, but now, you know, I mean, we're, we're about 80% digital now, you know, even, even with, with over 50 shops. Um, and so that is now played out in the actual, you know, revenue shift in the, in the business. Um, so yeah, so I, you know, I, I think, and certainly COVID, um, you know, has had an impact on that in particular this year. Um, but I, I, that was the direction we were going. Um, anyway, you know, going, going into the year. So, so yeah, so that, I, I think that was, um, you know, part, part of what I brought to the table and, and, um, and, and interesting, you know, and, and I marketed to women and I marketed to women digitally, different category, but within the wellness space. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think that that was another piece of sort of how do you, how do you take a wellness product um, and really help translate that digitally and make sure that that comes through within, you know, your influencer marketing, your social marketing, um, beyond what we had created in the store. So, you know, that, that was definitely sort of the goal. Um, and then for me, selfishly, you know, I, I was absolutely enamored by retail. You know, I, I'd always, I mean, I'd always been in this, we used to do pop-ups for Bobble Bar over during the summers and it was so fun. You know, you'd finally get to meet your customers in person and it was just, it was just glorious because you, you know, there's just such a, such a realness to, to seeing someone browse your product, um, and watching them is not just a user, you know, user group or testing group. Um, and so I was really excited to, to be able to not only, you know, touch and feel the customer and the product, you know, in, in, in that setting, um, but also understand what it means to run, you know, run stores. And that's a different skill set. So, um, so I've learned a lot, you know, and then, and we've definitely made some big transformations in the business. Yeah. It's, uh, that, that realness is, I know exactly what you're talking about. For me, it's like, I always remember this. We were walking through Aloe Yoga's offices and I just saw, there's like four people with our software up, just like clicking around. And I was like, whoa, like that's really cool, right? <laughs> and usually it's abstracted for me. Like it's like, and it's still really cool, which is like, I yeah. just get to see the data. I'm like, holy shit. Like people are spending a lot of time in this. Like, and when we talked to him, like, yeah, you know, I start my day in it and I end my day in it. And it's like, whoa, like, that's so weird. Like, just such a weird concept. That, it it uh, still yeah. thrills me, right? I mean, I still yeah. love being in a store and just watching someone pick up something. And you're just like, are you going to buy? Oh, oh, oh. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just, and, and, and certainly oh, with Tulo, that was always the case. Because it was so tired. I was like, oh, my God, you're going to buy it? Really? Because <laughs> um, I, I, mean, I think I have such, you have to have such respect for your, your customers, right? I and mean, I'm sure you feel yep, so, yep. you know, you, you're, you're so humbled by, by the choice out there. And the fact that they come to you, you know, I, I think is, um, remains humbling, you know, re- regardless of how big you get, um, you know, is, is always a thrill. Yeah. Bezos, I'm going to butcher the quote, but it's, you'll get the, the gist. He calls it, uh, customers are perpetually unsatisfied, right? So as soon as you, as soon as you like get Wi-Fi on the plane, they're like, oh, this is great, but I need it to it's be faster. Yeah. yeah. And then it's like, okay, yeah. okay. Now it's fast, but I want to be streaming totally. and emailing at the same time. Totally. And like, so they're always, you know, the bar is always getting pushed. It's brilliant. So, it's yeah. brilliant. Every time our customer pushes us, 
you, you kind of go, oh, God, really? Oh, oh. no, you're right. You're right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we're, no, we're working it's, on that. We're, it's yeah. in the process, I swear. <laughs> it's, why you, it's why you do what you do, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. yeah. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about kind of leadership for a second, right? So we've talked a lot about marketing and, and social, and I want to talk about that a little bit more too. Um, but you know, going from again, kind of smallish startup um, to leading a fairly large fairly distributed organization, mm. um, is a big jump, right? And I don't, you know, totally. and I don't, there wasn't any direct experience that you had had before that, um, you know, at least of that scale, uh, yep. maybe other than Goldman Sachs. So, um, what were some of the, the things that you've learned, right? As yep. transitioning into that kind of role or things that you found that worked in that role. Yep. Um, and then also, you know, the U.S. and U.K. Are, are, are similar in a lot of ways, but are different in a lot of ways, too, culturally. Yep. So I'd yep. love to hear about some of the, the things from a leadership perspective that you found that worked because, you know, 700 people is a lot of people. That's a lot of, yeah. lot of constituents, a lot of yeah. different Yeah, no, I was used to knowing everyone's name and everyone's like, yeah. good luck with that. <laughs> it's, you know, this is it's going to be a good, Yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I think, well, first of all, I was very lucky in that I had two founders um, who were who were so dedicated to, to helping me um, succeed. Um, and, and, and genuinely just, just, you know, and, and of course it built the business. And again, I'd been running this business for, for at the time, you know, over, over 20 years. So, um, you know, that, that was critical to my success, um, because they needed, you know, they, they, I needed them to, to help me and to teach me. Um, and so, you know, I was able to learn from the best, um, you know, I, I think coming in, I spent a lot of time listening and, and trying to, learn from all the different experts within the business. And I wasn't used to having so many experts in the business, right? <laughs> so I wasn't used to having, you know, an exec team. I mean, everything sort of felt all you know, very big and formal. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm in charge of the exec team. This, I'm, this is important. Um, these so, people are really good at their jobs. Oh no. Yeah, right. <laughs> they know way more than I do in most of these areas. Right. <laughs> Completely. So I, I think you, you, you really, you know, I first and foremost was, you know, trying to listen, but at the same time, you know, not being afraid to challenge, um, and, and I think challenge early on, you know, and, and, and find your voice and sort of say, listen, you know, here's some new ways to think about what we're doing. Um, and I was really conscious and I, I remain, you know, sort of conscious that, you know, you sort of have six months and actually we, we talked, we have a, a chief product officer who came in and she had said the same thing, especially when it comes to product, cause you get so sucked into the, you know, your own bubble. Um, you really have six to eight months, I'd say to be the fresh eyes. Before you're just in it, right? And before you're just living and breathing it and, and everything, you know, you're starting to sort of drink the Kool-Aid and, and it becomes harder to stand back because you're, you're trying to grade your own work. Um, and so I, I think it's really important when you come into new, to new businesses at whatever level, um, to not underestimate the, the power of those fresh eyes. Um, and I think for me in particular, because this, again, you know, a longstanding business and, and a lot of legacy and heritage, um, there were areas where fresh eyes, I said, I'm not going to touch this. My gosh, this is golden. You know, do not disturb, not broken, don't fix. Um, and then there were other areas that, that I, you know, felt, um, you know, required a lot of change and, and we, and we, and made a lot of change, um, both, both from a people standpoint and, and, and sort of investment and in infrastructure and all that. So, um, and I think what was great is, is again, you know, being really upfront and open with, with the exiting team, not that, I mean, the founders are still involved, but, you know, the founders, um, to say, you know, here's, here's what I want to do. And I don't want there to be any surprises, but this is going to be, you know, there's going to be things that we change and, and, you know, there's that healthy push and pull of, of how to do that. Um, 
but yeah, it, it, it was, um, you know, it, it was definitely a big challenge. And I think, you know, even now today, and, and one thing I struggled with quite a bit in the beginning was trying to wrap my hands around it and, and realizing that at scale, you can't do, you can't be in the weeds on everything, right? And this is something mm-hmm. I was starting to realize at the end of Tula too, is, you know, when, when you've been doing every job and you've been sort of in the detail, it is very hard to start to step back and say, actually, I have someone who can, you know, I, I do not need to be in that meeting. I do not need to make that decision. That is what our team is here to do. Um, and I still today is because we've grown so quickly, you know, every, quarter almost every six months, I have to sort of reset and say, what does my job mean now? You know, I used to do that, but now I don't, I can't do that. I need to do this. And, mm-hmm. and that constant reassessment of where you need to be spending your time, which, you know, candidly, I'm, I'm still, you know, it's, it's still hard. It's very hard to let go. Um, and I think you have to sort of figure out, let go in different, different stages. Um, so yeah, so I, I think that was, that was definitely one of the big challenges. Um, culturally, yeah, you know, I, I, I mean, this, I wouldn't say that there was sort of a major cultural shock, right? We all speak, mm-hmm. speak the same language. You know, I, I think certainly there's a lot of um, similarities. I mean, you know, yeah, everyone made fun of me from all my various vocabulary and I made fun of them for all their, you know, <laughs> learning all these words. And, um, but I, I think, you know, more than the American UK culture lesson, I think what, what was big, more important for me was trying to understand global, you know, what it means to, have multiple offices, right? What it means to have a team on the West Coast and East Coast. And now, you know, we have a team in Shanghai and you're, you're sort of spanning, um, you know, you're, you're spanning time zones um, and, and now increasingly different, you know, different cultures and customers. Um, and, and even though the world, you know, is so tied together and certainly after COVID, you know, we're all just a phone call away. Um, you, you're, you can't underestimate what distance that can start. You still have a real distance, right? You, mm-hmm. you still need to be, I, you know, I, I feel that I've not been in the States for, for many months now. You know, I feel mm-hmm. that I haven't been able to be with that team. Um, and it's still harder to keep everyone on the same page as the team starts to expand and as you start to touch on multiple, you know, again, multiple time zones and multiple offices. Um, and so I think I underestimated that. Um and and continue to feel even as an American distant from that team and distant from that customer. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So so I, I think that has been you know because Tula was only North American focused. So that's been a big learning curve for me. Is what does it mean to be a global business um, and how do you take that on? Because you know you forget that it's summer in Australia right now. You know you forget that it's you know it's really hot in Hong Kong right now. Why are we sending them <laughs> ski? Right? You know those are the things that you know, you really, that, that matters. And, and, and I think, you know, increasingly for us, because we're, we're really expanding quite, quite rapidly internationally, you know, trying to understand that customer um, is going to be really important. Uh, so that's, that's definitely been a, an eye opening. <laughs> yeah. Experience. I mean, it's, you know, I think we, I think what's nice is that in a lot of ways, everybody's being forced into this because, you know, the world's becoming more remote in nature, right? Like we have team members in the UK and New York all over the place, but it, it is, uh, I think it's really hard to fully replicate the, like the, you know, face-to-face exposure, right? Even as many Zoom meetings as we can do. Yeah. Um, I think that yeah. the thing I've always really liked is the like, Hey, you know, let's, once this all settles down, like let's do regular in-persons, right? So even though like Tribe now is a remote first company, like we will have office space for people that yeah. want to use it, but we are 
That is the expectation moving forward. And I think, yep. I mean, I think like, I think that's, I think that's Facebook is doing that, right? Like massive, yeah. Spotify is doing this massive companies. And so, but I think the kind of still getting together at a regular cadence, whether it's every six months or once a quarter and spending a week just with each other, I do think will be helpful. Right. And yep. I think to your point about um, kind of cultural differences in the U S it's like, yeah, you're just not surrounded about this by the same U S media. You're not surrounded by like the talk around the, you know, coffee table isn't about topics in the U S right. You're not totally. being bombarded with Trump tweets, although maybe a little bit, right. Like it's just, it's just different. Totally. So, Thank God. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. yeah um, no, it's, it's, but it's really, you know, it, it's so important and it's so intangible and it's hard to fully appreciate. Um, but you know, I, I think this summer, you know, with black lives matter and with everything that was going on in the states and even right now you know it, it's it's so hard to fully and i have family this you know I, I have every reason in the world to better understand what's happening on the ground and yet i'm not living it you know and and, and so i i think that is different and 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 that's the value of having you know your team in in, in different locations because because they, they can better you know put the finger on the pulse not only of, of the team but of, of the customer um but yeah no i i, I think i mean in person you know I miss it. You know, I, we, we will be some, a hybrid of some sort. Um, mm -hmm. but you know, I, I think you have to find a way to, to be with people and part, you just, you miss that stuff. You, video isn't enough. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. That's a really cool tweet. It was like, it was like, I'm trying to remember the exact months. It was just talking through the timeline, right? And how it was like Q3, like Zoom meeting, Zoom conference, Zoom wedding, Zoom this, Zoom that. And it's like Q4, like walk and talks, like on the phone, yeah. like no more Zoom. Like, totally. Shut up. We're so, uh, everyone's so burnt out. It's <laughs> Oh my it's god! Like, I keep saying to, I talk to my COO so many times during the day, and I keep being like, "Can you please put some art on your wall? Like, I can't stare <laughs> at your wall anymore." Oh my god! Like, like I feel so. You know, it's like. Well, I just, gotta. I just want to go back to phone calls. Like, phone calls are great. Like, you could be walking around. Like, you didn't have to. You know, I like phone calls. I want to get back to that, um, so <laughs> or just in person. Um, yes. Well, let's. Let's hammer through. I want to talk about influencer marketing a little bit, just because yep. you know you've been very successful at it um, in a variety of in variety of groups, right? Um, so, what have you noticed? You mentioned earlier in terms of there is a difference for you in apparel, right? Um, it could be sizing. It could be so. Talk to me about what some of the challenges are from an influencer marketing yep. perspective that you've observed, specifically in apparel yep. or even in the UKs, um, as well as you know what are what are some of your other philosophies outside of relationships? Do you have any other things that you really think about? that have made you successful? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think, um, you know, the, the transition to apparel and, and the, the, that category shift is, is definitely, um, it was interesting, right? Because I, I came in and sort of said, we have this recipe that works at Tula, right? And, yeah, and I was yeah. so, um, you know, I love what, what we were building there. And so I was really keen to figure out a way to replicate it and to bring that to, to Sweaty Betty. Um, and I think at, at the time, you know, we were, we were doing doing certainly doing influencer marketing, but it was definitely more through the sort of PR lens um, and, and not quite as relationship driven. Um, and it, it was a really, you know, eye opening experience for me to, to see that there is such a difference in the category um, mm -hmm. and that you really have to figure out sort of what works for your business and for your price point and for your, um, your customer and for your creator and, and partner. Um, because, you know, Certainly with Tula, what was great, and I think is, is probably similar in, in many um, beauty businesses, is that it, it's not as, it is a considered purchase, but it is also at a price and sort of a, a category that is relatively 
easy to test, right? The, the, the barrier to say, I'm going to try something in, in beauty um, is relatively low. Um, and so you see that with customers, right? They are willing to, especially um, in, in color, but in, in skin as well, to, to try. And so that dynamic with, with creators, I think, you know, works really well because the creator says, just, just try this. And, and, yeah. and so many um, of, of his or her followers are willing to, to listen and to try. So that, that direct connection between here's a product that, that an influencer or creator will discuss and here's the, the end action was very easy to track. In apparel, um, it, at least at our price point, um, which, which is a bit, you know, is, is sort of within the Lulu range for premium activewear, um, it's a bit trickier, right? Because it is a more considered purchase. And what we found is that we were trying to sort of apply this exact same, hey, if we give this to an influencer and she has maybe a promo code or she has some way of tracking it, you know, of course, we'll immediately be able to understand traffic back to the website and conversion. Um, and it's not a direct path, you know, for us. It is definitely more sort of brand building, brand awareness, understanding the product. And certainly there's some direct, you know, immediate convincing. Um, but, but we definitely felt that there was going to be a, you know, tracking was going to be a lot trickier. Uh, and I, th- I think what the team have been able to do now is be able to say, you know, one, working with partners more consistently and, and over a longer period of time was really, really important. Because again, this is, you know, the, I, I think followers really want to see our product in use. They want to see it in different environments. They want to understand the fit. They want to understand the fabric. They want to, there's lots of questions that, that she mm-hmm. needs to answer. Um, and so that we, one thing that we've found is that if we work with someone consistently over a longer period of time, um, it's, we're better able to understand if that, you know, partnership is, is generating, um, is driving traffic and, and generating, you know, sales. Um, and driving that kind of conversion. So, so that was a big difference from Tula. Not to say that in beauty, you shouldn't also partner with people over time, but I, I think that there is a dynamic at play that, that is, you know, a bit quicker in beauty. Um, and I think at least in our category in apparel requires a, a longer conversation. Totally. I mean, what you're talking about is what we're seeing in the numbers, right? And this is, I mean, it really is across categories, kind of like you mentioned, but the brands that are growing are showing these consistency of relationships, right? As yep. measured, we measure it by retention, right? So if you look yep. at it, it is just as retention of your 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 influencers go is as your EMV goes, right? It is yep. just in lockstep. Like, And I think that people tend to make the mistake of constantly focusing on new, 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 right? I need new people to talk about me, new exposure, new exposure. It's like, no, no, no. Like, let's get these people to be rabid fans of the brand. And like yep. consumers, they're going to have to see it 15 times, 20 times before they actually make a purchase. Like it's a lot, right? Yep. And so if you're measuring it purely on a last click basis, you're just really underestimating the impact generally. Yep. Um, Completely. So yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, so you- I think that was that was definitely a big you know learning curve for me, and just just r- respecting and understanding that the, that you can't apply you know a recipe, yeah, <laughs> um, totally. and a strategy across business. You know, you really have to be open minded, and and you know we've we've tested lots and lots of different ways of, of working with folks, and I, I think that is um, you know one one piece of the pie that's really come through. Um, and then I think you know measurement, you know measuring in different ways. Again, I think, you know, with Tula, a lot of really having that paid marketing lens has, has worked really well for them. And, and I think continues to work well for them. You know, for us, interestingly, I'm sorry, I might be getting ahead of you because I think you were asking about no, structure, no, no, but, but going, interestingly, <laughs> here's your next question. Um, you're on a roll. You know, where does it sit within our, our team? But it, it, it does, it is a shared, you know, um, 
it is a shared function and it is a function that sits pretty squarely in between performance marketing and brand because there is that performance marketing piece to say, how do we fit this into the performance marketing funnel? You know, is this content that we can repurpose? Can we boost a post? Can we use this content in our ads? Um, you know, and, and we think about spend in that from that perspective. And there's sort of the brand PR brand awareness element that sits within our brand team. Um, and so that team really sits like smack in the middle. Um, and I, and I think, where is it, where is it, you know, in, in Tula, we really had it more of that sort of that, that paid marketing, um, you know, org. So you, you have to be willing to adapt to what you're seeing. And, and that means adapting both from a strategy standpoint, as well as a team structure. Totally. And I think, you know, I think for tribe, like we have really focused on the brand measurement side, right? So that's what we've really built kind of most of our technology around. I think partially because I think it was often ignored, right? Like people didn't yep. really understand that element of it. Like, oh, okay, this is just a paid channel. It's like, no, 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 no. Like this is these, uh, not only is this not a paid channel, right? There's a massive kind of brand piece happening over here, but also the paid and the brand interact, right? Because the person you're working with is both the, you know, the, the sales department and the editorial department, right? And yeah. so like the way yeah. that you interact with them, <laughs> exactly. you can't have one, one, you know, I know that within the business, you have affiliate marketing over here and you have brand and PR over here, but like they're talking to the same person, right? Totally. And so <laughs> it's so, so that, true, right? I mean, you literally want everyone on the phone sort of all figuring out the strategy together, right? Yeah. right. So we're, we're diving deeper into the affiliate side of things because I think that it does, it is an important element to measure, right? But, yep. um, but yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense. Well, let's, I think we're, we're coming up on an hour here and I want to be respectful of your time. It's late, uh, in the UK. So we'll have, we'll do a fun few questions in a row, um, that you haven't seen yet, which will be right. uh, exciting. So first question, who is a better rower, you or Savannah? <laughs> <laughs> the answer is neither of us because we are both retired. And let me tell you something, there's nothing sadder than a retired rower. Because, you know, we, uh, it's been a long time. So the end, yeah, no, I, 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 that, that's, that's my answer. I'm sticking to it. That sport is brutal. My, um, brutal. wife's cousin rode at Michigan state and that your hands just get destroyed. Like it's gnarly. I can't even remember. I don't even know what I was thinking. I mean, I spent four years getting up at 4am in college. Like, what was I thinking? Well, that's not fun. <laughs> just, I mean, really, the, the answer is both of us were crazy and we should have been out partying. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, okay. Uh, so London or New York? Ooh, that's, that's a, that's a heart question. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I have to say London has really grown on us. It's really grown on us. And, and I think it's a stage of life. So I'm going to, I'm going to like sort of skirt the question and say, you know, for where we are with, with kids and, um, you know, I, I think London is a very kid-friendly city um, and there's a lot of green and, and we love our parks. So, um, so it has, it has really, I, and I was a New Yorker who said I was never leaving and, you know, the whole world is, you know, you know, I can't, nothing's as good as New York. Um, so uh, I can't believe that just came out of my mouth, but, um, but both, both special places. Amazing. Yeah. Someone's going to see this and be like, how dare you? <laughs> I very, I very much appreciate you. Uh, it was a very political answer. Not pissing <laughs> anybody off on either side. <laughs> right. When Stage you're my one. age, as old as I am, <laughs> you can't keep up with New York. I'm just not young enough for New York, you know? Right. Um, but, uh, okay. Okay. Last question. Uh, your favorite British TV show. Have you adopted any? Is actually a, another question. <laughs> 
That's a great. I, I I'm trying to think if I can. I don't know. <laughs> we oh, don't no. have Netflix. We have said this is a terrible question. I am clearly not adapted to this country at all. I know that everyone else is really into this strictly dancing thing, which is just like I don't get. Um, we're, we're on Netflix. We're watching The Crown, which I guess it counts. That counts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm we're actually the, watching the, latest... the Crown too right now. Yeah, um, everyone's watching The Crown. There's nothing else to watch. Everyone, yeah. Netflix has run out of content. Yeah, so we're watching The Crown, and so I think that counts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You barely escaped that one. I, uh, what's funny is I, you know, so when I would fly a lot, I'd fly all over the country, you know, fly for work. And I got into a routine where I'd have like the little monitor over here and I'd have my laptop over here. So I'd be doing work and like have, you know, some, some movie or show on that I'm like half paying attention to. And right. so I started doing that with the crown and, um, you know, I got my monitor over here, computer over here. And I was like, man, I've been watching a lot of this. I wonder what episode I'm on. I'm like on episode five. I'm like, holy shit. Like, this is like, there's like multiple seasons of this. This is like 400 hours of content. Like, How I've been long are these? Oh, well, it does sort of move at like a, a relatively glacial pace. Yeah, no, not... I really enjoyed it. It's not that I don't enjoy it. It just felt like I was like I feel like I've watched like are the, these episodes like yeah. at three and a half hours long. Like, There's a lot out. of history to take in, Connor. Come on, in this country, we like we Americans are so young. Like we're like you know trying to get through it all. There's a lot to take in here. This goes way back. Oh yeah, it's yeah. the last thing, and then we'll end. But I was just. This wasn't even on the fun questions. I just thought of it while we were talking. I feel like if there isn't already one, there needs to be like a former women's like HBS brand founder mafia, right? Because like I was as you were talking, you're like, oh yeah, Bobble Bar HBS, and then Rent the Runways HBS, and then Tula obviously, and there's a bunch Birch of them. I'm thinking of Birchbox, right? Yeah, <laughs> like we mentioned four of them during today or three of them. Um, is there like a, a mafia that you guys have a going? Or is it, yeah, it's like the PayPal <laughs> mafia. If you've heard Let those me, guys, yeah. If there is one, I I have not been invited yet. Well, so I think maybe, I think you need but, to start one, or I'll start maybe, one, just so I can yeah. be part of the circle. I'm like, I'm gonna connect all of you guys because you should be connected. It. Yeah, yeah, perfect. It's like it was a whole class. It was like it's got to be. It's like a five to eight year run at Harvard Business School. You guys, you guys all started like. It's got to be like yeah. 30 brands by now. It was, it was, the, it was the startup scene. Yeah. We were all, you know, every, finance had fallen apart. What else are you going to do? Go start a company. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> That's true. Uh, awesome. Well, I appreciate you taking out the time. I know I learned a lot today. I know everybody else that's going to listen to this is going to learn a lot. So uh, thanks for taking out the time late on a uh, Tuesday night. Yeah. Um, my pleasure. Yeah, thanks for putting up. I mean, I can't believe I've been wearing these the whole time. This is going to oh be my comical, God. but yes. It's great. <laughs> it's great. Uh, all right, Julia. Thanks yeah, so much. Thanks we appreciate it. Bye. Good Bye. to see you, Connor. Bye. Hit subscribe now. Earned by Tribe Dynamics. Tribe Dynamics unlocks your social media influencer community. Our platform not only tracks and measures your best influencer relationships, but discovers new influencers to grow your business through earned media. Get started with a demo today at tribedynamics.com. Tribedynamics.com.